0: How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am... I am good too. We live in an I am good culture. Everyone says, I'm good. I'm fine. I'm cool. I'm great. But that's simply not true. We're faking it. We're hiding it. We're wearing a mask trying to keep up a persona that's simply not true. I'm scared to let you in. I'm scared to let you see the real me. I'm scared what you might think. If I let you in, you would see that I am not good, that I'm not fine, and I'm actually defeated. I'm depressed, I'm discouraged, and I am disillusioned. Relationships, finances, school, work, marriage, kids, health. The truth is, I am Welcome everybody to Easter uh, at the Bridge. It's good to see you here today. My name is Ethan. I'm one of the pastors here. And just as a heads up, um, we love water around here. Water on the floor, water all over the place. We got people sitting here with wet hair this morning, which is good. Which is, uh, we love to be able to baptize people. Amen. Uh, we love, we love that. We love to celebrate um, what's going on. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I grew up, uh, I grew up in church. I mean, if you've been here uh, very long, you know this. But if you're new, you don't know this about me, but I grew up in church. Anybody grew up in church? Anybody here when you're a little kid, you were okay, you you Now the thing about when you're a little kid and you grew up in church, there were all these like church songs uh, that they taught you, like I am a C, I am a C-H-R-S-T-I-N. I have J E S U. Oh, how does it go? I am N" and L I V E E T E R N A L L Y. See? That's, like, that's a little song that you sing. Now, there's another song that you sing. Some of you may be familiar with this. It is uh, called Happy All the Time, all right? And th- this is kind of, this, and if you didn't grow up in church, I'm, I'm sorry. I apologize. This is really weird, and I, I, I know, but I apologize. So here's, here's how it goes, go. says, I'm in right, out right, up right, down right, happy all the time. All right, so let's do that together, everybody. Uh, participate. Ready? So I'm in right, out right, up right, down right Happy all the time. And, go, and it would say, Since Jesus Christ came in and washed away my sin, I'm in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. And you're like, Is he gonna sing it? Yes, I'm going to sing it. So this is how it goes. He goes, I'm in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. I'm in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. Since Jesus Christ came in and washed away my sin, I'm in, right, out, right, up, right, down, right, happy all the time. Give yourself a hand. Give yourself a hand for that. Now, there's only, uh, there's only one uh, problem with that song, with well, maybe multiple problems, but one problem specifically with that song, and it is that it is not true. It just isn't true. And we teach our kids a lot of songs that probably... Aren't true, but it says, it teaches us that if Jesus comes in, if you become a Christian, if Jesus comes into your life and washes away your sin, then you get to a point in your life where you're just happy all the time, and the reality is, is that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're happy all the time, that we live in a world that is unfortunately it's broken and it's flawed and we don't live that kind of lifestyle, but we get the idea that church Church is for the people that are happy all the time. Church is for the people that have their mess together. It's for the people that don't have any issues. Church is for the people that don't uh, wrestle with defeat. It's, it's for the people that don't battle with depression. It, it's for the good people. It's for the people with pleated pants and beautiful blouses. And if that's you, then you get to show up because that is what church is for. And what happens is we, we come and we walk in this place and we begin to fake it. We begin to fake it and we put on a mask so that we look the part. And rather than externalize our issues and externalize our feelings and our pain, we just keep it inside and try to press on. And what eventually happens is you just stop showing up because you don't want to play the part anymore and you don't want to act like everything is okay. And then we also get the impression that that's not only the way that church is, we also get the impression that that's how God is, that God is for the good people, that God is for the people that are the happy ones, the people that have their mess together. But how, whenever, whenever we look in the Scriptures, we see a Scriptures and we see a God who is for the broken. I mean, he is for the broken, he is for the defeated, he is for the discouraged, he is for the depressed, he is for the disillusioned, he is for those who are done. And here's the the dirty little secret that we don't like to say, is that essentially every person, almost every single person in the Bible had significant issues and significant struggles. And you walk in here today, and I know that you've got issues, you don't have to hide it. You think that your issues are significant, you just just open the Bible and flip a few pages around and you will be grateful that your issues are not as magnified as these. And so what we're going to do today and for the next three weeks is a series called I Am Done, where I'm done, where you're at the end, and we're going to talk about what it means to be in that spot, defeat, depression, discouragement, and disillusionment, and today we're going to start with defeat. I am defeated. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to jump into Genesis chapter 37 with a great story, probably one of, one of my most uh, favorite stories in the entire Bible, a story by a man named Joseph. Now, Joseph, he was the son of a man named Jacob, who also had, was known as Israel. He was the one who, the, the nation of Israel, it came from Jacob, his, his name. He was the father of this nation. And Joseph here had 11 brothers, 11 brothers. And of these brothers, including Joseph himself, would come eventually the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. So these guys are pretty important, all right? All right. And it's crazy that they're included in the story. It's amazing. Now look with me in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 37. This is what it says. Now Israel, this is Jacob, uh, Joseph's father. Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. That is just a bad start right there. (laughs) That is just a bad start because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. He made him a Sunday Easter suit without giving one to any of the other sons but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him there's a long story that's kind of going in that I don't have the ability to jump into this morning a generational sin story where this man Israel uh, Jacob he you remember he was he was the he was the son of another man who had a brother and his father loved his brother more than him. You see the generational issue that's going on here, and now uh, J- Jacob has translated that to his own family situation. How many of you live in a in a family where uh, thank uh, thank your parents, thank your grandparents? You have significant things that are happening in your family because of people that have gone before you. And see, uh, J- Jacob here, he had a wife that he absolutely adored a wife that he loved, a wife that really gave him significance, gave him meaning in life. And it was because of her that he felt valuable, that he felt significant in life. And she actually bore him two sons, Benjamin and Joseph. But his wife, that he had all of his eggs in that basket, no pun intended, had all of his value and worth in her, she died. She died and his significance kind of went away. And so, what he did was he translated his affection, his need to feel important to his son, his son named Joseph. And Joseph here is loved by his father more than any of the other sons. And he makes him his own coat of many colors. And his brothers hated him. And then the story goes on to tell us that Joseph had two dreams like crazy, bizarre dreams. He had two, two dreams. He, he, he's asleep one night, and he, he wakes up, or he has this vision in the middle of the night that there are these sheaves of grain, there are 11 sheaves of grain, and they bow down to him. And this is a crazy. We think it's from God. We're not completely sure, but he has this dream. And so what does he do? He wakes up in the next morning, and says, I had a dream, brothers, that all of you would be bowing down to me. That really helped the situation a lot. And then he had another dream not not long after that. He had another dream where there were stars and the stars were bowing down to him as well. And so he decided he would tell them again, don't do that. Just don't say that. And he told his brothers, one day you will be bowing down to me. And it says that their hate, their hate grew even more for uh, him. Now look at me in verse 12. It says this. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem in Israel. This is Jacob. He said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. Verse 18, And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Verse 19, And they said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Negative sarcasm to him. Verse 20, Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see that we will become what will become of his dreams. Verse 23, And so when Joseph came to his brothers, stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Can you just imagine for one quick moment this morning that you are Joseph? Can you put yourself there? It's kind of a desert landscape. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. You're way away from your home and your father. You've been traveling, and you see your brothers, and you show up to your brothers, and you meet them, and you realize very soon that they have been conspiring against you to kill you. They grab you. They take hold of you, perhaps throw you to the ground, rip off the robe, your most prized possession that you have. They take you over to a pit, most likely a well that would have been deep, and they take you and they throw you into the bottom of the pit. Can you imagine the rejection that he must have felt the abandonment the abuse it would have been dark down at the bottom there it would have been cold it would have he would have been in isolation he would have felt like there was no way out here's the first thing that i want to say to us this morning sometimes life throws you in a pit Sometimes life throws you in a pit, and it doesn't matter here today if some of you aren't in a pit. uh, Aren't in a pit? pit, uh, I can't say that word. uh, In a pit. Uh, Praise God for that. Some of you are in one, and here's the reality: is that you are either going into a pit, you're either in the middle of one right now, or you just came out of one. And the reality is that sometimes life throws you in a pit. Throws you there I was looking on Facebook at one of my friends this past week and he tells a story and I'm actually going to share it with you just a brief part of it and he says this his name is Wesley he says three years ago today around this time of night I sat with my wife as we watched my sister lie dying in her hospital bed we sat and sang hymns as she passed from this life to the next in some ways it feels like it's been so long ago but in other ways feels so recent. I still remember how everything felt that night, horrific, yet strangely hopeful. I was so angry and sad, but still knew that the Lord was sustaining us through the heartache and loss. I miss her and all of her irreverent silliness. I miss her stubbornness. What what I would wouldn't give to be able to argue with her one more time. I miss how encouraging she was when she wasn't depressed and hopeless. I miss how she could remind me that God loves me even when it felt the hardest or felt the farthest thing from the truth. I hate death and all that it steals from us. That's being in a pit. And maybe you're here today and you've lost someone that is close to you and you feel like you are in a pit Maybe you're here today and you just found out that your spouse has been cheating on you. Maybe you're here today and you have a child that is handicapped or potentially has a disease. Maybe you have a diagnosis that is terminal. Maybe you're here and you feel all alone without any family or anyone that is closest to you. See, when you're in a pit, you feel, you feel like no one understands you. You feel alone, you feel isolated. You feel like it's never going to change. You feel like it's never going to end, that it's cold and that it's dark. You feel like there's absolutely no way out. I just want to say today that we have many, many people in the room today that I know of and some that I don't know of who are in a pit. If that's you today, I just want to say here at the beginning that I'm sorry. You need to hear somebody vocalize to you today. That they're sorry. I'm sorry for what happened to you. I'm sorry for what you're going through. And I also want you to know that if that's you, that you're not weird. If you feel defeated today, that you're not weird. You're not strange because of this. You're not crazy. You're not in this alone. And we may not be in the same pit that you are, but we have all been in a pit. And we are all in good company here today, regardless of what you are. Are through, And there is a high likelihood that there is someone else in the room today that has been through the exact same pit that you have been through. And here's the beautiful thing about Christianity. I love this. The beautiful thing about Christianity is that we have a God that also entered the pit. We don't have a God that is, that is distant, that is foreign, that is separated from the earthly realities that we face he isn't a distant deity that is in his own realm, in his own sphere by himself, but we have a God, the Son of God, who came and entered human history, who left heaven when he didn't have to. When he entered your world, he entered your turf. He came and walked the ground that you walked. We say it this way at the bridge. He lived the life that you couldn't live. He died the death that you should have died, and he conquered the grave that you couldn't conquer. And we have a God that isn't distant, who, who isn't uh, foreign to your situation, but we have a God who entered the pit and knows what it's like to be in the pit. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus, in every way, like us, he understands what it's like to go through the pit, and he sympathizes with us. Which means he cares for you, which means he has something in the center of him that breaks when you break. Isn't that good news today, that you, got a, you have a God that when you break, he breaks, that when you're in pain, he's in pain, and he knows what it's like to walk through pain, and sometimes life just throws you in a pit. Now, I also want to say this, because some of you are feeling very excited, maybe high and mighty, maybe a little pious today, because you aren't in a pit right now. But there's a high likelihood that there is someone close to you, perhaps a friend, perhaps a family member, perhaps a neighbor, a roommate, a spouse, a child who is in a pit, and I'll say this to you. We should never try to minimize the pain or excuse away the pain of someone close to us that is in a pit. It's not helpful to excuse away the pain, to minimize it, to act like it's not that big of an issue. Your job is not to understand the pain. Your job is to be present in their pain. And if someone you know is in a pit, they need your presence, not your judgment. They need your presence. This is what my friend in town, Pastor Clifford Barnett, he says, this is the ministry of presence. Which means if there is someone close to you in your life that is going through pain, all they need is your presence. They don't need your piousness. They don't need all your uh, significant Bible principles about the way that they should work through this and get out of this situation that they are in. They just need your presence. They need your presence. They don't need your judgment. They need your presence, which means there's some there's some husbands in the room that you need to stop telling your wife to get over this and get through this. You need to be present, you need to listen, you need to understand. We've got some parents in the room that don't understand what their teenager is going through, and you need to listen. You need to listen. You need to recognize that their reality, it's true for them, it's it's real for them, and that their pain is real to them. And it doesn't help us, it doesn't help them at all to minimize their pain. And I love this, what the psalmist says in Psalm 147, it says that God heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. God heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. It's it's, it's a metaphor. It's an analogy of a nurse. You ever been to the hospital? Ever been to, uh, had a wound, had a cut, had something, and and someone was there that, that took care of your wound for you? It's a picture of what God does. I remember when I was a little kid, It was uh, Christmas. I think I was in middle school. My family and I, we had just moved to Myrtle Beach. I think it was our first Christmas there. And I remember being a little kid, being so excited about Christmas. Uh, My parents had gotten me what I wanted. They got me a gator knife. Anybody remember the Gator knife? It was this awesome knife. had this wonderful handle, big black handle that had a nice rubber feel to it. And I remember opening it. I remember opening my knife, being so excited. And I decided that I would use it for the rest of my presents. And I'm cutting up, uh, wrapping, and opening up all my presents like, ah, you know. And my three other brothers and sisters are freaked out, you know, and I'm walking around with this knife. Here's what happens. I cut myself. I cut myself because I was a young kid that didn't know how to use a knife correctly. And I still have a scar on my... Thumb right here. If you were close enough, you could actually see it. It goes from the top of my knuckle all the way around the, d- the side of my thumb. And I remember when that happened, blood just started pouring out everywhere, all over the place. And here's what my mom did. My mom, she wasn't frazzled. She grabbed me and she walked into the bathroom. She ran a little bit of water on it. She put her uh, hand over it with a cloth to stop the bleeding. And then she t- took out a couple butterfly band aids and then wrapped up my cut. And she took care of my wounds so that it could be in the place to heal. Do you know that's what God does for you today? God God doesn't necessarily just take away your pain right there in that minute, but God does promise you that he will heal your wounds. That He'll heal your wounds, that he is for the brokenhearted and that he heals those who are wounded. That's a good God, amen? That is a good God. God. Psalm 147 verse 3. Now jump with me back into the story. Uh, Joseph is left to die, but one of his brothers comes up with an idea. They figure out a way that they can make money off of him. Look with me in verse 26. It says this, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver and they took Joseph, the Ishmaelites took Joseph to Egypt. Joseph is taken out of the pit, but then immediately he sold into slavery and captivity. He would have been here a victim of human trafficking. His brothers wanted to make money off of him just for a few pieces of silver. And Joseph is taken far away from his home to another country, to the nation of Egypt, verse 31 and then they took joseph's robe and they slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in his blood and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said this we have found please identify whether it is your son's robe or not and he identified it and said it is my son's robe Strip him of his most precious possession. They kill a goat. They slaughter a goat. They dip his robe in the blood in order to concoct a lie to their father, Jacob, that Joseph was killed and was eaten by a wild beast. Somebody else close to Jacob dies. He thinks. It's one that replaced his value and significance that he found in Rachel. Now his son Joseph, from what he knows, is gone and is dead and he literally goes into a downward spiral of depression and defeat now fast forward me with uh, to chapter 39 verse 1 it goes on and it says this now joseph had been brought down to egypt and potiphar an officer of pharaoh the captain of the guard an egyptian had bought him from the ishmaelites and had brought him down there verse 2 and the lord was with joseph and he came became a successful man this is joseph And he was in the house of his Egyptian master, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended to him, and he made him overseer of his his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Wow, this is incredible. When Joseph is here, he's at the bottom I mean, this is like the worst situation you could envision in your mind. He's a victim. He's a recipient of so much injustice and suffering and pain. But through it all, the Lord was with him. Here's what that means. Uh, Life may take away your health. Life may take away your home. Life may take away your family. Life may take away your money, but it can never take away your God. It just can't doesn't matter what you're going through, what you're facing, what you're walking through. There isn't a situation, there isn't a scenario in which God's presence can be removed from you. Deuteronomy thirty-one six says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. I love that, which means regardless of where you are, regardless of what your situation, God is with you in that moment. And I just have to say a little... Uh, Pastor Pet Peeve here uh, this morning. Uh, I hear a lot, and I I do this sometimes, so I'm I'm guilty as charged. Um, We like to pray sometimes, Lord, please be with so-and-so. Lord, please be with us. Lord, please be with them. Lord, please be. We're, We're requesting, we're praying that God would be with them. And it's like, God is already with them he is there. We need to start saying prayers like, God, we know you are with us. God, we know you are with them. God, we recognize that your presence and your power are here in and through us. And we declare that today. And we stand in that today, that we aren't isolated, that we aren't alone, but it doesn't matter where we are. You you are there with us, that God is always here with us. And in the middle of our horrible situation, Joseph excels and succeeds and prospers. It says that he does such a good job for Potiphar that Potiphar makes him uh, the head in charge of his entire estate. That's amazing. I don't know about you, but if I'm Joseph and I'm in Egypt, like, I'm done. You no, know, like, screw Potiphar. Like, I, I don't care about that. Like, I am not doing a good job for this guy. I mean, look at my life. Look at my past. Look at my pain. Do you see everything that I've gone through? No, I'm not working hard for you. I, I'm, in the, I'm in the middle of, of, of the... I'm at the bottom I'm in the middle of this crazy situation. I'm not going to work hard. I'm not going to do this. But Joseph here, he decides in the worst of circumstances that he is going to succeed. Here's what that means. Your circumstances don't define you. Your circumstances don't define you, which means you must decide whether or not you will allow your circumstances to define you. You can't control your circumstances, but you can control how you respond to your circumstances. You have to decide who is going to win. Are you going to let your circumstances win, or are you going to win? You could say it this way. You have to decide what story you're going to tell. Are you going to tell a story of defeat and let circumstances define you, or are you going to tell a story of victory and of a God who is greater than your circumstances? That means today, somebody today needs to go ahead and decide that you are no longer going to let your past define you somebody needs to decide today that you are no longer going to let what happened to you define you you're no longer going to let what what the past happened to you what people did to you the circumstances that you have found yourself in and that is no longer going to define you you're going to define yourself by what God says about you you need to, you need to speak that you need to speak that you need to believe that you need to walk in that and I don't Think that there's probably many of us that are in a circumstance as dire as Joseph, yet Joseph, in the middle of this circumstance, he thrived. Even though he was in a defeated situation, he actually arose from it. And here's here's the first way that you have to change this. I intentionally titled the series, I Am Done. The statement of identity, I Am Done. The title this week is, I Am Defeated. Do you know that's actually an improper, incorrect title? If you say, I am defeated, you are making a statement about your identity. You are making a statement that you are defeated, and rather we need to say, rather than I am defeated, I want you to say this, I feel de- defeated. Because if you only say that you are defeated rather than you, defe- you feel defeated, you will always be defeated. You walk in here today, you feel like I am done, I want you to say, I feel done. Don't let done define you. Don't let defeated define you. Say, I feel that way. You need to speak that. Proverbs eighteen twenty one. it says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. What that means is that what you say is either producing death or life in you. If you are constantly saying negative things about your situation, then you are only going to bring death into your situation. But if you are constantly saying positive things about your situation, you are only going to bring life into your situation. And I love the way that Tony Evans says it. Love this guy. He says this, faith is saying something is so even when it is not so in order that it might be so simply because God said it is so. That's what faith is. And some of us need to stop just walking around in the dungeon of our pain. And I recognize that your pain is real. But at one point, at some point, you've got to say, I am no longer going to be defeated. I am no longer going to let my circumstances define me. And every single person in this room today has a narrative about your life. This is probably one of the most significant things I'm going to say in this entire series. Every single person in here has a narrative about your life. And you are either telling a false narrative or a true narrative. You're believing a narrative, you're believing a story about your own life. It's either a false narrative or a positive narrative. A false narrative, it focuses on what is not true. I'm not gifted. I'm not talented. I'm not skilled. I'm not lovely. I'm not attractive. I'm not going to be a good spouse, I'm not going to be a good parent. No one wants to be around me. No one understands, no one cares, no one wants to spend time with me, no one can relate to me. That's a false narrative. That is not true of your life today. It is not true. You need to rather have a true narrative and focuses on what is true, which means in Christ, in Jesus, I am loved. I am valued, I am significant, I am capable, I am gifted, I am called, I am strong, I am known. It's a narrative. Which narrative are you telling? Today I brought this with me. I've I've showed this to you once before. But this is something significant that we do as a family for our little girls. I've got three little girls, age of five, three, and one. I'm already indoctrinating them. Uh, even Claire can even speak yet but we're already working on this and this is hanging up in our kitchen uh, I'm sorry rather our dining room on the dining room wall and it says this we say it almost every mealtime in Jesus I am chosen I am called I am loved I am new I am free I am safe I am strong I am sent and I'm trying to teach my little girls that it doesn't matter what your circumstances say about you. It doesn't matter what situation you find yourself in when you're in middle school and your first boyfriend dumps you. When you're a teenager when you're a te- and you have an unplanned pregnancy. When you are in college and you have a drug addiction. When you are older and your, your, your mortgage falls through. When your husband leaves it, this is what's true of you regardless of what your situation that in Jesus I am chosen, I am called, I am loved, I am new, I am free, I am safe, I am strong, I am sin. And some of you today you need you need to you can't copy that, that's mine. You need to work on your own narrative. What narrative are you telling? What narrative? You could say what sermon? What sermon are you speaking to yourself? What sermon are you preaching to yourself? Because if you are in Christ, if you are in Jesus, you are loved, you are called, you are gifted, you are everything that God wants you to be in Jesus Christ. You are in him. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 4 and 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We take every thought captive to obey Christ. Every thought. Don't let that thought, don't let that thought spend time in your brain. Say, you're not welcome in my brain. You need to get out. Paul also tells us in Romans chapter 12 that you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the way that you think. The way that you think, the way that you preach to yourself, what you say to yourself, has the ability to transform your life in Christ. And we need to start believing that faith is a weapon that God has given us against all the circumstances that we face. In Joseph's story, Joseph's story Unfortunately, it gets worse before it gets better. Don't you hate that? You were almost there. You thought it was going to turn around. You thought it was going to get better. And then another thing happens. Why, God? Why would you let this happen? Verse 19, it says this. As soon as his master Potiphar heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, he, his anger was kindled, this is Potiphar. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and there he was in prison. Joseph is at the top of the estate of Potiphar. He's apparently an attractive young man from what we read in the Bible, and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and he resists, he flees. He even gets to the point where his robe is stripped of him. Once again, what he was wearing She tries to seduce him. He runs out of the house literally. And she concocts another lie, another lie against Joseph to Potiphar. And she tells Potiphar what happened, lies about it, and Potiphar immediately throws him into prison. Can you imagine being Joseph? All that's happened to you, that you're wrongfully accused and you're sentenced to prison, you're sentenced to the dungeon to die. We read later that Joseph didn't spend a couple weeks in the dungeon, that he didn't spend a couple months in the dungeon, but we read that literally for several years, Joseph was in the dungeon, in prison. Imagine how defeated you would feel if that was you. Verse 21 But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he, Joseph, was the one who did it. You see this? It doesn't matter where Joseph goes. It doesn't matter what circumstances he is in. He can't ever run away from the steadfast love of God. The steadfast love, this word in the Hebrew is the word hesed. We've said it here a few times at the bridge. It's chesed. It's the Hebrew word that means God's unstoppable, unshaking, unbreaking, always and forever covenant love for you. It's throughout the entire Old Testament. Regardless of what Joseph, find, wherever he finds himself in, the Hesed of God, the covenant love of God is always there beside him. And this is what's crazy. While he is in prison... Joseph continues to gain favor and would be appointed in charge of all the other prisoners, and Joseph continues to succeed even in the worst of circumstances. Here's here's what that means. God does his greatest work in the worst of circumstances. God does his greatest work in the worst of circumstances. And some of you are here today and you are primarily concerned about changing your circumstances when God is primarily concerned about changing you. And maybe you were in that prison, maybe you are in that dungeon, maybe you are in that situation because of God, what God wants to show you, what God wants to reveal. I've said it this way before, God uses pain in our life because uh, pain produces what pleasure never can. If your life was just a a continued stream of steady pleasure for the moment that you woke up, the moment that you were born, to the moment that you had died, you wouldn't have any need for God. And God allows us to enter pain and go through pain so that we can understand him and recognize him and know him. And God continues to use Joseph's horrible circumstances for his glory and his good. And we'll fast forward to the end of the story. Because of Joseph's wisdom from God, that he is able to interpret dreams, which would be just a fantastic gift. You know, I would love to be able to do that. You have a dream, you come to me, I'll tell you exactly what that means. Joseph actually interprets two dreams of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was the king king of all of Egypt, and Pharaoh is so amazed by his wisdom that he frees Joseph from prison and sets him in second in command next to himself so that he is essentially the vice president of Egypt. And because of a famine in the land, all the surrounding countries, all the surrounding countries come to Egypt for food, and Joseph's family actually comes and bows down before him, and Joseph is in charge of it all. After years, it says that he is now 30 years old at this time, and he is second in command of all of Egypt, and he has come up actually with a strategy and a plan to feed the entire nation and the surrounding nations. And we see here that even Joseph's family comes to him. This is where the story comes to full circle. Genesis 45, verses 4 through 8. So Joseph said to his brothers who were standing in front of him, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now, at that point, I'm ready to give it to him. You know, I'm like, this is what you guys did to me. Like, you better, I'm in charge. I'm going to send you to the dungeon where I speak. You know how many years it's been? You know what kind of pain I had to go through in that situation? I'm about to sock it to him right right there. But this this is what he says. And now... Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father, check this out, even to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And he says this at the end of the book, Genesis 50 verse 20. As for you, to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring, about, bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is what's amazing about Joseph's situation. This is what's amazing about his story. This is amazing about what he's going through. Joseph recognizes that his entire life has God's hands all over it. And Joseph choose to believe that in the worst of circumstances that God is writing a story with his life. What if you believe today that God was writing a story with your life? What if you believe today that God is going to preach a sermon through your life? What if God is going to take all the pain, all the darkness, all the defeat, all the brokenness, and he's going to use it to write a beautiful story? See, that's what God does That's what our God does, and this is my last point. God takes our defeat and overcomes it with victory. That's what he does. That's what he's good at. That's what he's best at. God loves defeated situations because he always takes our defeat and he overcomes it with victory. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily that he'll do that today or tomorrow, but he will do it one day. And he has promised and assured you a victory in your life regardless of what you are facing and what you are going through. And you see, we have to see in this story that this story is not primarily about Joseph. This story is primarily about another son who would come later. You see, like Joseph, Jesus would leave his home and his father. Like Joseph, Jesus would be Hated and wanted dead. Like Joseph, Jesus would be sold for a few pieces of silver. Like Joseph, Jesus would be stripped of his garments and wrongfully accused. And like Joseph, he would be cast into the dungeon of death. But unlike Joseph, Jesus would actually be killed and he would die. But like Joseph, he would not stay in the dungeon. And three days later, he would conquer the grave, defeat death, and in so doing, not just save a nation, but would save the entire world. It's a story about Jesus. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you like to be a winner? I love to be a winner. I love competition, and I love to come out the other side and be a winner. And what God assures us is that if you are in Jesus, you are a winner because he has given you the victory. And I'll close this way. I actually didn't read all of Wesley's story. Here's the end of Wesley's story. He says this, I hate death and all that it steals from us, but... I'm so thankful that there is a God-man who destroyed death and will one day reverse its effects in full. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? John 11:25 25 and 26. Jesus is risen today. He is risen, and he rose to give you the victory to co- conquer Satan, sin, hell, and the grave. Can we, can we celebrate that this morning? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus and for what he's done, and that regardless of what our life says, regardless of what the circumstances are in our life, that you rewrite the story that you take our defeat, you take our pain, you take our brokenness, and you bring victory in that situation. So, God, would you give us the ability to write a new story for our life? Not a story of defeat, but a story of victory. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.